Welcome back to Life After Her Sinus, Woman in Medicine, Part 2. I'm your host, Johnny Myers, and in this special COVID-themed episode, I'm again sitting down with Dr. Zeba Husseini and Dr. Andrea McCoy to discuss the implications of the novel coronavirus and how the medical community has changed as a result of the pandemic. Additionally, we discuss the value that a neuroscience education brings to their careers. We absolutely have to talk about COVID-19 and how it's impacting both of your careers. The novel coronavirus is definitely taking a toll across America. Um, and as people that work more or less on the front line of this issue, um, you must be seeing some unprecedented things and having to make material changes to the way you, to the way you practice. So could you talk about how COVID-19 has impacted um, your professional space and what you think will be coming down the pipeline in the future? So you're right. We have to talk about COVID because there's nothing that I talk about all day, every day other than COVID. It has impacted healthcare in, in ways that none of us could ever have imagined. And healthcare will never be the same again. How it's going to look on the other side, I'm not 100% sure. Um, but it's a good thing, Zeba, that you're early in your career because you have the opportunity now to, to flex with, with a lot of the things that will change. Um, you know, healthcare has changed in so many ways anyway since I, since I um, first became a physician, ways that I never would have anticipated it, it would change. But, you know, my career now is in healthcare administration. So I'm, I'm not on the, the front lines of treating patients. I'm on the front lines of treating patients on behalf of all of my colleagues, um, everybody from nursing to respiratory to the physicians, and most importantly to our community. I, I'm fortunate that I'm in South Jersey where it hasn't had the same impact as it has in North Jersey or um, in New York. You know, God bless the, the souls on the front line there. Um, but it, it has forced us to rethink everything we do. It has forced us to think about priorities. Um, so screening colonoscopies are not something that's important. And six months ago, we were saying, get it done, get it done, get it done, get it done. And now it's like, that, that is nothing. So having to rethink priorities, rethink how we are going to keep our employees safe in a way that we always thought about, but it has taken it to such a new level. How are we going to be able to care for patients when our resources are strained? making decisions that you never thought you would have to make and things that were part of our everyday business are just sitting on a shelf. So it forces me as both a physician and a healthcare administrator to make sure that every decision that, that I authorize, every discussion I have with my frontline team keeps all of those priorities in the front while reprioritizing which patients we're caring for and how we're caring for them and how we're using our resources. It's scary almost how from one day to the next, what you're thinking has has shifted and decisions that we made two months ago are now 90 degrees shifted from where we were. Um, so Zeba, you use the term be flexible. We have to be flexible and we have to be nimble and adjust to everything that's changing. Um, the only thing constant in this whole thing is the change. And, and needing to adapt to it. And, and those who adapt will provide the best care to their patients and will come out of the, the end of this in a stronger way, I think, I hope. 
I don't know, Zay, but tell me how it's affecting you. I mean, it's had a huge impact, I think, on training programs, right? It has had quite an impact on, on training programs. I would like to preface this by saying I feel extremely fortunate and extremely grateful that I am training and I am getting to see this at the time of my life that I'm getting to see it and that I have a sense of job security in residency you have like weeks or months of training at a time so you'll you'll go from one service to another place in the hospital and it, it fluctuates and I actually um, was in the ICU at the time where the peak hit Philadelphia and I and I have to say you know Jefferson did a wonderful job preparing and making sure that we were always the the residents were always well equipped with personal protective equipment etc but it's definitely an uneasy time. It's you're you're scared, you're worried, you're worried about your colleagues, you're worried about yourself, you're worried about spreading this. And it's so hard that you go from, you know, you have your bread and brother diagnosis, you know when patients come into the hospital, this is what they have, this is what you're gonna do, this is how you're gonna treat them. And then all of a sudden you're in the ICU and you're looking at your supervising doctors, you're looking at the people that are your role models that you look up to, and you're like, there's this virus, nobody knows what to do. What should we do? And your attending, your supervising doctor looks at you and they're like, we don't know. And that moment, the first couple of days in the ICU, I was just totally distraught. I was exhausted mentally, emotionally, seeing how sick and how fast these patients get sick was shocking. But I think even more shocking than that is just seeing people who are so experienced, doctors who are so intelligent, not know what the right thing to do is and be struggling with it themselves. You know, I'm just in the beginning of my training and my experience, and I can only imagine how it felt for them to feel helpless. Um, you know, we went through, do we use this medication? Do we treat them for this pneumonia? Do we do this? And are we, are we using certain techniques? And it's all it's all hard. I don't think there was any wrong answer. There was no right or wrong in this. It was just how can we provide the best care? And so what I made my mission was the hospital is totally different now. In the ICU before you would have family members at the bedside. You would always be able to talk to people coming in and out. And now there's no visitors unless patients are kind of at the, the end of their life. It's a very different environment. We had the highest percentage of patients on ventilators in the ICU at any given time in the history of Jefferson because of COVID-19. And so you feel a big sense of helplessness because we don't know how to treat it. We don't know what to do at times. And these patients are getting sicker. So I said, what is one thing that I can do that will make myself feel better in addition to making them, the patient, whether they know it or not, also feel better and their, take, their, take care of their families. And I would make it my mission to call each of the families once or twice a day, give them updates, answer their questions, and make sure that, you know, if we could set up a FaceTime session or if they could talk to their loved one on their phone, or if, you know, there are even times where the patients are on ventilators, but their their family members still want to see them and making sure that's available to them. And having those conversations over the phone are much harder than having them in person when you're able to hold somebody's hand, you're able to see their body language, you're able to offer them tissues or, or you know, really assess. It's, it's harder to assess how a person is feeling over the phone, but at least they knew that we are trying to keep them in the loop at this time where nobody knows. You know, like Andrea said, all of the non-elect, all of the things that are elective and all of the things that 
we encourage people to do because it's important, but right now we are not encouraging them to do because of the risk of getting COVID, of the risk of being in the hospital, the risk of being exposed um, is, is just very shocking. I, I can't imagine not learning some of the diagnoses that I learned during the first year and a half of my training. Um, not to say that those things aren't happening. People are still having heart attacks. People still get pneumonia. People still have all of those, those medical problems that they need to be in the hospital for, but we're trying to manage as much of it as we can outside of the hospital. Um, and so training has certainly been impacted. Our schedules are very different. The, the governing body of residency programs, ACGME, has certain requirements that trainees have to, to fulfill in order to graduate from training and be a board certified physician. And that all of those requirements have kind of at a halt. So in three years, if you're supposed to do like three or four months of ICU, and not a max, if you, the maximum of ICU may be six months. It doesn't matter if you do ICU for a whole year now because of COVID and because of scheduling issues. You know, you get up every day, you go to the hospital, you wear a mask. That's another thing that's just totally, I don't think we'll, I'll finish residency and we'll stop wearing masks. I think that will be, we, we will be wearing masks till I graduate. And if not longer than that, it's, sometimes feels very dehumanizing not to be able to see your colleagues not for your patients not to know that you're smiling at them behind their mask or to to see your facial expressions i think one of the things that i always felt was important in medicine was that human touch being face to face in a room talking to the parent the child and as you point out seba a lot of that has gone away now, our nurses are still spending a large amount of time in the room. They're garbed up, though, so, you know, you see this much of the patient. The eyes tell a whole lot, and we've had patients, you know, say, I'll never forget your eyes, which, I mean, they show the smile, and, um, and our patients have told us that they genuinely appreciate that. The younger generation is, is very comfortable with the technology, both the physicians, the nurses, as, as well as the younger patients. But the older generation is not as comfortable with that. So having all of them learn that has been a, a, a bit of a challenge. And I think everybody has stepped up to that, including our physicians. But the whole notion that we can diagnose and treat patients by telemedicine is you know, just one of those things that I always knew was going to take a greater role. It has gone from being you know 10% of what we do to 80% of what we do. And I'm sure the pendulum will swing back to some degree. But the thing that I valued in, in medicine, that human interaction, is still there. It's just different. Um, I, I think the other thing, though, that this has forced me to do, and you talked about the moral distress um, that, that our young physicians, that our nurses and our respiratory and our pharmacists and, and our families are experiencing, but you know, especially those on the front line taking care, having to make decisions and admit to a family I don't know, or there's nothing more that I can do, or all those things you're reading about really have been tried and you know we're now three weeks further along and we know that it doesn't really work. Um, it, it creates a huge amount of moral distress. You know, we often talk about second victims, you know, people who respond to any kind of a trauma um, when there are mass shootings and whatnot, and then the caregivers really need that support. And we provide that constantly to them but I'm not sure we even know what we need. And just keeping that awareness is, is something 
that um, I, I think everybody in our organization, and I know, you know across the country and the world, are working on. And Andrea, you, you were talking about moral distress and how and, and second victims. And one of the biggest things that I struggled with in the in the ICU was one, you know, we're all especially the nurse, I can't I can't thank the nurses enough, are spending so much time in the room and they're worried. Like I've I've had conversations with nurses where they are worried about their exposure. They are self-isolating from their families. They haven't seen their own families in weeks to months. They don't know what to do if they have children at home because we don't know the impact of that. And it's it's really hard to see that distress, but then you carry the, not I wouldn't say the baggage, but the, the moral distress of your patient. And and one of the things for me that was really, really hard was our, our hospital was deciding the policies of, you know, end of life. How do we, how do we support a, fa- a patient at the end of life, but minimize exposure to family members? And it was, the decision was in flux of, can we have a family member visit? Can we not? And I felt so strongly, and I still honestly feel so strongly that no one should die alone. And the 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 fact that people are dying alone because of the risk of being exposed, because of the risk of patients' family members coming into the hospital, is so hard for me. And it makes me angry. It makes me upset. It makes it's it's very morally distressing to me because of course I don't want more people to be exposed. But I can't imagine that people are dying this way, even though I'm seeing it firsthand. I, I agree with you completely around that that human touch at the at the end of life, and and I'm sure Jefferson, um, like Cape Regional, has gone to great lengths to make sure that no patient does die alone. Though their family members may choose not to come in, we do mm-hmm. allow family members to come in for end of life. Uh, because I, I agree with you, it, it's important. And while no one person in our organization makes that decision, I'm happy that I'm one of the people who has significant influence over that decision. And we've been able to maintain that at least at this point. And, and we'll be learning that for years into the future, sadly, as well, what the impact of all of these decisions we made today were. And that's the thing that keeps me up at night is thinking about the impact down the road. It, this really does sound like a, a dire situation and there, there absolutely needs to be a lot of flexibility and there needs to be a lot of really strong mentorship um, and strong leadership. Can you both describe or at least give some insight or some advice as to what you think young people who want to go into medicine should be keeping at the forefront when they're making these decisions when they're when they're going through a time like this and they need to keep a lot of grounding and understanding, is there any advice that you would like to pass on to younger students that are interested in going into medicine? I'm going to ask Zeba to go first on that, just because you're so much closer to it. I would say that if you're interested and you can't see yourself doing anything else, then medicine is not just career, but lifestyle at least it has been for me so far, and I hope it continues to be that way. I think one of the most important things you can do is get mentorship, learn from others, their experiences, expose yourself to all all these fields, all of the specialties in medicine, and be open to, to things that you may or may not have thought you were interested in, um, and learning about them and honing what your interests really are. 
one of the things that I often do is when I have a, uh, a female attending, I will ask about family planning or I'll ask about how did you, how did you conduct this research when you were in training or outside of training? How do you balance these things? And I think just having conversation with these mentors teaches you so much and will bring up ideas um, and experiences that you hadn't thought of before. I think any career that you're pursuing, you really need to, it has to be something that you, you have a calling to. Otherwise, it's just a job. So I think if you have that calling, I agree with you, Zeba, you need to learn as much as you can about it, talk to people in the field. I do have concerns that because of what the community and young students have seen, it may cause them to think differently about a career in medicine because none of us could have anticipated that doctors, nurses, physical therapists would be putting their lives on the line to help provide care to patients. Not to mention, as we've discussed, the moral distress, but, but it is a calling. And it's a privilege for us to be able to take care of patients and, and their families and, and our colleagues. And I think that this is where you really can learn, is this really what my calling is? Because if it's your calling, this is something that you can pursue and will emerge from this and it'll be different. And none of us knew what medicine would be like six months ago when it was very different than it was 30 years ago when I was making the decision to go into medicine. It's probably a little bit more than 30, but we'll leave that part out. So I think understand that it's still the calling and you've got to learn a lot about it. And you shouldn't be dissuaded because of what you saw happen in the year 2020, because something different is going to happen in the year 2028 and in, in 2032 that you might not have anticipated. You, you know, for me, the biggest change was all of the, the business of medicine, you know, I was all about taking care of people and, you know, how the science played into that. And I, I had to learn about the business of medicine. And that's part of the reason that my career shifted. And, and I think understanding that when you go into medicine, you've got a path laid out, but things are going to change anyway. And don't be afraid because of what you've seen happen in this last year. And and again, to underscore what Zeba said, talk to people about what did you learn from this? How did this change you? And what will you do differently now? Because you're going to hit all little speed bumps. They're not going to be, you know, mountains like COVID is, but you're going to hit all kinds of little speed bumps along the way. And it's that flexibility that helps you to know that you're going to be able to survive this and, and change as you go along. I think medicine will be stronger because of this. And I think the people who are choosing to go into medicine will be the people who recognize what a privilege it is to, to work in this field. Totally agree. It is the biggest privilege, biggest honor. Every day I feel lucky that I get to do what I love. If something were like, like this, God forbid what were to happen again, I would have a better handle on it than I would have if I hadn't gone through this. We do have one question we ask all of our guests. Do you have a memory from freshman year and do you remember what your dorm room was your freshman year? I was in Paisley 311. <laughs> and do, do I have a, I, I do have a very specific memory because the whole year started and we had we had classes 
and a picnic on Labor Day. And I just remember how welcoming that felt. And that's probably the, the most significant memory I have next to the Phillies winning the World Series in 1980. Um, I did not live on campus the first couple of years. I, I commuted and then my family moved to Canada, actually. And so I lived on campus. Um, I lived in 32. It was across the street. It's not, it's not student housing anymore. Um, in terms of a memory, I would say it was just the relationships that I formed, the, the friends that I'm still friends with to this day. Um, and I think ambassadors was one of the most memorable activities, I would say, that I was involved in because I think the UC ambassadors helped me feel comfortable as a student when I came to Ursinus. And then I was able to uh, fortunately give back to them by being one myself. And I just really enjoyed all the, like you said, the picnic and the orientation events and how everybody took care of you. Um, so those activities and forming those friendships um, with people that I'm still friends with now uh, is the thing that I find most memorable. And I spent a lot of time in the library, a lot. <laughs> I want everyone to know that if anybody asks me about Ursinus or where I've gone to school, my the first thing I say is Ursinus got me exactly where I wanted to be in my life. And I owe it to, to my college experience, to be quite honest with you. I, I second that totally. I, I still follow on social media my high school and one of the seniors is coming to her sinus and she is going to be pre-med. So I just quickly shot a message out. I haven't heard back from her yet, but because it has to go through all the channels. But I was just so excited. I thought, how great is that? It could be a mini me. <laughs> so, so very exciting. You're absolutely right. I think we create our own destiny. But her sinus unquestionably helps me to get there.